And tonight we want to talk about how to keep ourselves in the love of God. As we contend for the faith, we saw some pretty stern warnings that are given to us in the first part of the chapter. And in the end of the chapter, we have some encouragement that is given to us. In verse number 1 and 2, it says, Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ. He says we are preserved in Jesus Christ. In other words, in verses 1 and 2, we are kept continually and forever. But then you get over to verse 21, and he says, keep yourselves in the love of God. So we're kept continually, then we're to keep ourselves, and then in verse number 24, he says, now unto him that is able to keep you. So we're kept by God forever, we're to keep ourselves in the love of God, and then he's able to keep us. I'm thankful that God keeps us, but there's some things involved in which God says, I want you to keep yourself. There's some responsibility that we have, not as far as our salvation. Our salvation is settled, we're sealed, we're kept by the power of God. But in our Christian life, he says to us, we're to keep ourselves in the love of God. There's a sense in which God keeps his own, but there's also a sense in which we keep ourselves. Don't allow yourself as a child of God to get into the same position that the prodigal son got himself in when he was down in the hog pen so that we cannot enjoy the privileges of the position that we have as a son in the father's house. The prodigal son left the father's house, and he was miserable. Then he came back to the father's house. So we want to stay in the father's house, amen, and stay in that place where God can bless us and where he can work in our lives. So how do we do this? How do we keep ourselves in the love of God? Several things that he tells us here in the last part of this chapter. First of all, if we're going to keep ourselves in the love of God, There must be edification. There must be edification. Look down at verse number 20 with me, if you would. He says, But beloved, building up yourselves on your most holy faith. He says we're to build up, or we might say grow up. You know, we're well aware that all the babies in Christianity are not in the nursery. Amen? But God doesn't want us to stay as babies, as Christians. He does say as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word, we ought to have a desire for that, but we grow as a child of God. We don't stay babies. We set our goal to become spiritually mature, to grow up. Don't be like the church at Corinth. You study the book of Corinthians, First and Second Corinthians, you find a church that was childish, People were confused, they were carnal, they were conceited, they were charismatic. In those days, to call somebody a Corinthian was not a a compliment, it was an insult. And Paul said to them, grow up. And for us as Christians, we need to grow up. We ought to be eating the milk of the word instead of sucking on the bottle of the milk all the time. You know what the difference is between the milk and the meat? Milk you get from the cow. Meat is the old cow herself. (laughs) So we go from the milk and we're to get the meat. We're to grow up as we learn and as we build in the Word of God. The Word of God is meat. The Word of God is milk. The Word of God is medicine. The Word of God is like a mirror, James says. And so he tells us here we're to build ourselves up. Building yourself up on your most holy faith. We're building up in in the Word of God. That term building up is a carpenter's term. 
It's like a carpenter that's building a building. It means that you, you have to put the foundation down first. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, the foundation is Jesus Christ. And then you put up the walls, and then you put the roof on the building as the builder is building, and then you come inside and you finish up the work inside, all of the details and all the trim and all that sort of thing, and the building is complete. What he's saying to us is, as Christians, we're to become complete, we're to grow up, we're to become mature. Set out in your life to become spiritually mature. Paul said to the Corinthians, they were to lay down the toys and pick up the tools. Toys are for children to play with. Tools are for men to work with. And so as Christians, God is saying to us, pick up the tools, grow up. Sometimes we need to leave the toys alone and start working with the tools and make our lives count for the Lord. As I said in 1 Peter 2.2, 2, he says, As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that ye may grow thereby. We get the milk and we begin to grow and we get the meat and we get the truth from God's word. If you have all truth and no spirit, you dry up. If you have all spirit and no truth, you blow up. But if you have a balance of spirit and truth, then we'll grow up in the Lord. So he says, first of all, there must be edification. We need to be edified. We get that through the word of God. Secondly, there must be intercession. There must be intercession. Look back at verse number 20. But ye, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost. Praying in the Holy Ghost. In other words, if we're going to grow up in the Lord, and if we're going to keep ourselves in the love of God, we have to learn to keep a constant contact with the throne of grace. We constantly need to be in touch with God, don't we? Praying always, the Bible says here, in the Holy Ghost. Now, where in the Bible does it say for the Christian to pray to the Holy Ghost? I don't know of any place in the Bible that it says that. But it does say we're to pray in the Holy Ghost. We're to pray in the Holy Ghost. A man who is filled with the Holy Ghost does not talk about the Holy Ghost all the time. The Holy Spirit puts his emphasis on Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, when Abraham, who was a type of God the Father, sent Eliezer, who was a type of the Holy Ghost, to seek a bride for Isaac, who was a type of God the Son, he goes and he meets Rebekah at the well. And they go back to the house of a man by the name of Bethuel. Bethuel was so thrilled that there was a servant there from the house of Abraham that he makes a big banquet. And they sit down to eat at the banquet, and Eliezer, he sort of pushes himself back away from the table before he eats, and he says, I refuse to eat until I get a chance to tell you about my miracle, my master's miracle son, who is sitting on the edge of the field waiting for me to be, bring a bride back to him. He never talked about himself. Eliezer never magnified himself. He magnified Isaac. He talked about the son, the miracle son of Abraham that God had given to him. God wants us to do the same thing. We're to lift up the son. We're to talk about the Lord Jesus Christ. And Rebekah was Abraham's love gift to Isaac. The church is God's love gift to the Lord Jesus Christ. So how do we pray in the Holy Ghost? We get on our knees, 
And we say, and we don't have to be on our knees, we use that as an expression of prayer. You can pray in any position, but that's a good place. It represents humility and bowing before the Lord. But we get on our knees and we say, Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. And by the way, that's the only way we get anything from God is through the Lord Jesus Christ. You can't even get a decent wife until God, through Christ, gives her to you. I can prove that to you from the Bible. Isaac was 40 years old. He was a type of Christ. He marries Rebekah. Where does he get her? He gets her out of the house of Bethuel. The word Bethuel is the root word for the house of God. Bethel is, Beth is house and El is God, house of God. So where did he find the bride? He found her in the house of God. That's a good place to find a wife, isn't it, guys? In the house of God, to find a husband in the house of God. Esau in the Old Testament is the type of the Antichrist. Where does he get his wife? We won't go back there right now, but in Genesis chapter 26, verse 34, he gets his wife out of the house of Berai, B-E-E-R-I, Berai. Berai means rubbish of the world. Isn't that interesting? Would you rather have a mate from the house of God or from the rubbish of the world? So you get on your knees and you pray, Our Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. And the first thing you know, as we're praying to Almighty God, you know this and I know this too, when we pray, what happens a lot of times? We start praying and our mind starts wandering, doesn't it? It starts wondering. That's why it's a good reason to have a prayer list when you pray. And our mind begins to wonder, and the first thing you know, we're praying in the flesh, not in the Holy Spirit. And we begin to pray for things that we want that are maybe of the flesh. They become empty words, and we begin to express our wishes and our desires to God. And then we say, wait a minute, what am I doing? And we get back, and we concentrate, and we think, and we begin to pray in the Spirit. And before long, we're back in the flesh and thinking about what we want, and we're praying in the flesh and in the Spirit at the same time. What's God going to do with that kind of praying? Well... Somebody said, he ain't going to send no trash to heaven when he talks about the Holy Spirit helping us with our praying. The Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit of God, I believe, takes the trash out of our praying and he throws that aside and the prayers that we pray in the Holy Spirit are the prayers that go up to the Father which is in heaven. And he makes that kind of praying fit the will of God for my life back down here as I pray in the Holy Ghost. We learn to keep in constant contact with the throne of God, and we pray in the Holy Ghost. So there must be edification, there must be intercession. Thirdly, there must be expectation. If I'm going to keep myself in the love of God, the Bible says there must be expectation. Look at verse 21. Keeping yourself in the love of God, what's the next word? Looking looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. We're looking. There must be expectation. We as believers are to live in expectation of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought to expect him to come today. Amen? He could come before this service is over. He could come before this day is over. Are we living with an expectation of the coming of Jesus? When I was growing up, I had the privilege of being raised in a Christian home. My dad was a pastor for many years. He was a functioning alcoholic when he got saved. God called him to preach. 
But in our home, we had nine kids in our home. We had a nice, small, normal family with nine kids. And we had a plaque in the living room. It was, it, it was about this wide and about this high on the wall. And it just had two words on it. It said, today, perhaps. And every day when we saw that, we were reminded this could be the day that Jesus comes back. Perhaps today. Are we looking? Are we living in anticipation of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ? Even the Old Testament teaches us that the church is going to be taken out before the tribulation. The passage that we were talking about in Genesis 24 that deals with Abraham and Eliezer and going to get the bride, Rebekah, for Isaac. When Rebekah and those ten camels came near the last hill and she saw Isaac sitting on the edge of the field, it says she lighted off her camel. Now, it doesn't say she lit up her camel, just in case some of you aren't sure about that. She lighted off her camel. Now, watch this. Sarah was already dead and buried. She's a type of the nation of Israel that's been set aside now for over 2,000 years. And the bride comes into focus. And in verse 64 and verse 67 of Genesis 24, it says that Isaac marries her in the eventide or the evening. He doesn't marry her in the nighttime. He marries her in the eventide, in the evening. He marries her in what is considered the fourth watch of the day. That's somewhere between 3 o'clock and 6 o'clock in the evening. The nighttime in the Bible is a picture of the great tribulation. So he marries her. He takes the bride, which is a picture of the bride of Christ, and he does so before the nighttime, before the tribulation, before the time of Jacob's trouble, which tells us that God's coming and taking his church out of here before the tribulation time. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, if you want to turn back there with me for just a moment, look at what it says in verse 15 and 16. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse number 15 and 16. And it says this. It says, For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord, those that are still alive when Jesus comes back for the rapture, shall not prevent them which are asleep. That word prevents an old English word that means precede. We won't go before those that are asleep. I was listening this morning when I was having breakfast to David Jeremiah. I like to listen to him sometimes. He's talking about the rapture, and he's talking about the verse that says, it says, the dead in Christ shall rise first. And he said, somebody asked him one time, why do the dead, why do they get to rise first? And he said, I don't know. Maybe it's because they got six feet further to go than we do. So they get to rise first. thought that was kind of an interesting explanation of that. But he says that they'll not prevent or precede them that are asleep. We won't. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Now, a lot of times in Paul's epistles, he puts the rapture and the revelation in the same verses of Scripture. Now, what's the difference in the rapture and the revelation? The rapture is when he comes in the, in the air and he calls us out to be caught up together with him. The revelation is seven years later when he comes back to the earth 
And then it says, every eye shall see him. He'll come back and he'll set up his kingdom and he'll rule and reign for a thousand years on, the, on this earth. So there's the rapture, seven years later, the revelation. But sometimes Paul puts both of them together in the same passage of Scripture. And he talks about them together. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 32, it says, Give none offense, neither to the Jews, nor to the Gentiles, nor to the church of God. There are three classes of people. There's Jews, there's Gentiles, and there's the church of God. In 1 Thessalonians 4.16, he says, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout. That's the shout of victory for the church. That's those of us who are still remaining, who are saved. We are called home at last to be with the Lord for all of eternity. And then he says, with the voice of the archangel. Archangels are only mentioned six times in the Bible. And every time they're mentioned, God is helping or encouraging or protecting the nation of Israel. So you have the trump of God, you have the voice of the archangel. The trump of God deals with the church. The voice of the archangel deals with the nation of Israel. And then he says the trump of God, that sounded to gather the Gentile nations together to fight the battle of Armageddon in the valley of Megiddo. So he puts all three groups, the, the Jew, the Gentile, and the church all together. And he puts the rapture and the revelation in the same passage of Scripture here. Titus chapter 2 verse 13, it says, Looking for that blessed hope, that's the rapture, and the glorious appearing, that's the revelation of the great God and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we are to be living in anticipation of the Lord's coming. I'm, be, I'm to be looking for Jesus to come back every day. In fact, the Bible says there's a crown for those who love his appearing, those who are looking for his appearing. So, first of all, there must be edification. I'm to build up, grow up. Then there must be also intercession, I'm to be praying in the Holy Ghost. Then there must be expectation, I'm looking for him to come back again. And fourthly, there must be compassion. There must be compassion. Go back to our verses in Jude and look with me at verse 22. He says, and some, verse 21, he's just talked about, we're looking for the coming of the Lord. We're looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. He takes us home to be with him. And of some have compassion, making a difference. So what's he saying there? If I'm going to build myself up and keep myself in the love of God, I must have compassion. I'm to be involved in rescuing the perishing and caring for the dying. I'm to have compassion for those people that aren't saved yet. Those that are not going to get caught up with the Lord when he comes back. Those that are going to be left behind. I need to care and love and have compassion for them. On October the 8th of 1871, Dwight L. Moody stood and preached his famous sermon entitled, What Then Shall I Do With Jesus, which is called the Christ? Ira Sankey, which is his song leader, got up and sang the song, Today the Savior calls for refuge fly, the storms of justice fall, death is nigh. And D.L. Moody got up at the end of the service and he said, Ladies and gentlemen, take this sermon and take this message home with you and come back tomorrow night, same time, same place. And that night, 
Mrs. O'Leary's cow kicked the lantern over in Chicago and burned the city to the ground. And they said that 500 lost people who were in the service that night died in that fire and went to hell without God. What James is saying is we need to have compassion that we might win them before it's eternally too late. If we're going to keep ourselves in the love of God in these days of apostasy that we talked about this morning, there must be compassion. Do we care about our neighbors who are not saved? Do we care about our family members who, if they die, will spend eternity in hell? Do we care about those people that we work with or those that we go to school with? Or do we just go through life and never warn them and never tell them about the judgment of God and how they can escape it? If we're going to keep ourselves in the love of God, we must have compassion. Any doctrine that you hear preached or believe that will cause you not to have compassion for lost people is not necessarily that the doctrine is wrong, but it may be somebody perverted the doctrine. Somebody perverted it. By the way, you don't deal with every person the same way when you're witnessing to people. When you're telling people about the Lord. Verse 22, he says, and of some have compassion. Verse 23, he says, And others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment spotted with the flesh. Not everybody you deal with the same way. Those of you who have children, if you have more than one child, you know you don't deal with them all the same way. Everyone is different. And we deal with people differently. Used to be, you could go out on the streets or in the neighborhoods of America and talk to somebody about the Lord, and they knew what you were talking about. And you could talk about Christ and salvation and about the old rugged cross and amazing grace. Nowadays, you can go out and talk to people, and they don't have a clue what you're talking about. We live in a different day. We have to deal with some people differently. I was talking to somebody not too long ago, and, and they had no concept when I was talking about salvation. I had to go all the way back to Genesis and begin to deal with them to show them that they're a sinner as Adam and Eve sinned and how sin came in. You've got to lay a foundation sometimes. You can't always win somebody in five minutes of sharing the gospel. Sometimes you can, but most of the time it's going to take some time to explain and give the Holy Spirit time to convict. There are other times when the Holy Spirit's already been working and the groundwork has already been laid and the seed has been planted and you can come and harvest, but you don't deal with everybody the same way. But we must have compassion. We must care for them and do whatever it takes to rescue the perishing. And while we deal with them, he says at the end of that verse, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. In other words, <coughs> excuse me, he says while you're dealing with them, He said, don't get contaminated with their sin. Amen? You see, our job's not to become like them. Our job's to help them to become like us. That's why James said, pure religion and undefiled is visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction and keep yourself unspotted from the world. You see, the greater difference there is between you and me and the world the more conviction there will be when we share the gospel with them and when they watch our life. But if we become like them and there's no difference, then what do we have to offer to them? And so he says to us, 
hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. We want to reach everybody. We're not living in isolation. Yes, we live separation from the world, but not isolation. But while we live in this world, we have to not become spotted by the world. And then he tells us also, not only do we need edification and intercession and expectation and compassion, but fifthly, there must be biblical separation. There must be biblical separation. Look at verse number 23 again. He says, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. We're to cultivate a holy hatred for everything that is sinful and impure and doubtful. You see, the idea for the Christian is not to see how close we can get to the world, but to stay as far away from it as we can. I heard the story years ago about a man who was looking for somebody to drive the carriage for his family. And he had several people that applied, and so he took them out for a test drive, and he got them in the carriage, and they take the reins of the horse. And the first one, the first candidate, he got within about 20 feet of the edge as they were going down this edge of a cliff. And he thought he did pretty good. The second man came and he got a little bit closer. He got within about 20 feet of the edge, or 10 feet of the edge. He got a little bit closer. And he thought he did pretty good. The third man, the third candidate, he took the horses and he got as far away from the edge as he could. And the man said, you're hired. You see, the idea is not to see how close we can get to the world. The idea is to stay as far away from the world as we can. Keep yourself unspotted from the world hating even the garments spotted by the flesh. Deuteronomy chapter 22, if you go back there with me for just a moment. God gives to us in Deuteronomy 22 the doctrine of separation. And he tells us some things about biblical separation all the way back in the Old Testament. Now, I understand that we are not under the Old Testament law. And there are some things that were given as, as the... Mosaic law in the Old Testament that, thank God, we're not still under those. But they're principles that are given to us about separation. Back in the Old Testament, they were fit, forbidden to eat certain kinds of animals. They were considered unclean. Later on, the Lord said to us, if we cleanse it with prayer and ask God, He said we can eat of the various things. But it's kind of interesting, though, though, though we may be able to eat all the different meats and so forth, you get, you get uh, um, gout and you go see the doctor and what does he tell you to do? He says, don't eat the pork. Certain kinds of things. You know what? The Lord had some good ideas in the Old Testament, didn't he? What was clean and unclean. I have some heart issues. I've had a couple of stints. Some of you have had stints too. Uh, you've dealt with that. And so what does the doctor tell us? He tells me you got to watch your cholesterol, and so you got to stay away from shellfish because it ha it's high in cholesterol. And we all do that, right? When we are when we have heart issues, we st what I'm saying is we can we can eat those things. But when God gave those principles to the Old Testament people, He said, if you follow these, none of these diseases that came upon the other nations will come upon you. What he said is not still binding mosaic law that we live by today, but there are some pretty good principles and ideas that he gave to us. So notice in Deuteronomy 22, first of all, he tells us that our seed must be separated. Our seed must be separated. Look at verse number 9. 
He says, Thou shalt not sow thy vineyard with divers or different seeds, lest the fruit of thy seed which thou hast sown and the fruit of thy vineyard be defiled. God says they were not supposed to use different kinds of seed together. And of course, we know today with the cross-pollination and all that kind of stuff, of course, in our world today, they're not trying to keep away from it. They're trying to do more of it and mix things all up. But the best way to understand Scripture is compare Scripture with Scripture. So what is he talking about when he says seed? Matthew chapter 13, verse 23 says, But he that receives seed into the good ground is he that heareth the word and understandeth it, which also beareth fruit and bringeth forth some an hundredfold, some sixtyfold, some thirty. Mark chapter 4, verse 14 says, The sower soweth the word. Luke 8, 11 says, Now the parable is this, The seed is the word of God. So when the Lord talks about our seed, and we're not supposed to mix different kinds of seed, He's talking about the word of God. He's saying to you and me today that there's got to be some biblical separation. In other words, the word of God must be separated. There is a need for us today to have the right seed, not a corrupt seed or a diluted seed. That's why we still use the old King James Bible. Many of the new versions, or perversions as I call them, have been watered down and many verses have been left out. They all used the wrong text from which they were translated. The Texas Receptus and the Received Text is the proper text. Many of them use the Westcott and Hort text which is perverted and is not correct in many ways. So our Bible is to be separated, amen? Our seed is to be separated. Then he also tells us that our service is to be separated. If you look, if you're still in Deuteronomy 22, look at verse 10. He says, thou shalt not plow with an ox or an ass or donkey together. You're not to plow with them. The ass or the donkey was an unclean animal. It is a type of the unsaved person. The ox is a clean animal. It's a type of the believer or the saved person. You can't, the Bible says, be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. The ox parts its hoof, chews its cud. It has three stomachs and purifies the food. Psalm chapter 1 verse 2 says, And in his, in his law doth he meditate day and night. Meditate means to ruminate, or it's kind of like the old cow or the sheep that chew the cud. The ox also has different gates than the, than the donkey does. The ox can go down in the riverbed, pull up his hoofs out of the riverbed as clean as a hound's tooth. But you take a mule and a horse, either one of them, and they have to get up on top of the, of the ground, and every step they take, they pick up a little bit of dirt and a little bit of earth with it. And you get to see a little bit of the analogy. When we walk through this world, we pick up a little bit of the dirt and a little bit of the, 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 the filth of the world. That's why we need 1 John 1, 9 in our lives. If we confess our sins, thank God He's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us. And so the ox and the, and, and the, the donkey represent work, our service. And God says our service is to be separated we're to serve the Lord God of the Bible. We don't serve the world. We don't serve, and we have to be careful because we can get caught up in so many different things that we don't have time to serve the Lord. And our service must be separated. It's separated unto God. And then thirdly, he tells us in verse 11 that our speech must be separated. 
He says in verse number 11, Thou shalt not wear a garment of divers sorts, as of woolen and linen together. Wool you get from an animal. Linen you get from a plant. When you think about garments, it is a picture, it's our clothing, it's what we put on. It's a picture of our testimony. Our clothing says a lot about our testimony, doesn't it? We ought to dress right. We ought to dress modestly. And it also speaks when we think about our testimony, we think about our speech, what we say, what we tell people, what we do. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, if you look over there with me for a moment, look at verse, uh, verse 14 of 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And notice what it says there, 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 14. And this is a chapter that many of you are familiar with. You've read these verses many times, I'm sure. He says in verse 14, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. God says there's, there's some things that just don't mix. You can't have fellowship with righteousness and unrighteousness, with light and darkness. You can't have fellowship with Christ and Belial or Christ and the devil. You can't have fellowship with God and idols. And he goes on and talks about the different things that do not mix together. As a child of God, we're to be separate. We're to be different. Our testimony, our speech, all of it, when we think about he talks about us, verse 14, be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Don't marry an unsaved person. Don't date an unsaved person. Usually you wouldn't date somebody that you didn't like. So if you date them, that means you have some kind of interest usually in them. And that means somewhere down the line there's a potential marriage. So don't date them. A preacher one time was preaching in a revival in Detroit some years ago. And there was an older woman that came to the services every night of the revival. And he said she looked like somebody that a plow had been run over her face. There were furrows down her cheeks. He said she wore an old felt army coat. There were no buttons, but there were great big safety pins to go through the buttonholes. But she kept hanging around every night after the services like she wanted to talk to somebody and so the preacher shook hands with her one night, and, and she said, Preacher, she said, I've got a prayer request for you. And he said, Tell me what it is so that I can know how to help you and how to pray for you. And she began to weep. She said, I'm so ashamed. I don't even want to tell you. And he encouraged her to tell him what it was that, so that he would know how that he could pray for her. And she began to weep uncontrollably, controllably, and the tears ran down those furrows on her cheeks and finally she said, preacher, she said, my son is in the penitentiary. She said, he raped a woman, and then he got drunk and killed his own wife. And then she said this, she said, I'm so ashamed to own him as my son. And I got to thinking about that, and I thought, I wonder how many of God's children 
would he be ashamed to claim as his own children? I wonder how many times we have lived in such a way that God would say, I don't want anybody to know you're my kid. You see, that's all part of that law of separation. We want to live in such a way that we bring honor to our God, not a reproach to our God. In our day-to-day, sin is something that somebody else is guilty of. It's not what I'm guilty of doing. It's easy for, de- for us to see what somebody else is doing wrong. You know when we'll have real revival in our lives and in our church? It's when we start hating the sin in our own life just as much as we hate the sin in somebody else's life. And so what Jude is saying to us is he's saying, cultivate a holy hatred for sin. Hating even the garments spotted by the flesh. You know, there's some words, you just say the word, and it's, it's almost petrifying. It, it horrifies us. If I say bacterial spinal meningitis, our youngest daughter had bacterial spinal meningitis when she was 18 months old. When, we, when the doctor told us she had meningitis, those were horrifying words. We had just known of some people that had died of meningitis. People talk about leukemia and cancer and staph infection. And now in the recent years, COVID causes a lot of of horrifying feelings to go through us. The doctor comes out and he pulls that bluish green mask off of his face and he says, I'm sorry, I did all that I could. And and you say, Doc, how long does mama have? Those words, cancer, grip our hearts. They're horrifying words to us when we hear them. I would to God that the word sin was just as horrifying to us as the word cancer is. In 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 19, the Bible says, Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are His. And let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. God says, I want you to depart from iniquity. I want you to live in such a way that you don't bring reproach on my name. So he says, we're to keep ourselves in the love of God. How do I do that? I've got to have edification. I've got to be built up. I'm to set my goal at becoming spiritually mature. I need intercession. I need to maintain constant contact with the throne of God. I need expectation. I'm to be looking for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ every day. I need compassion. I care about the lost. I'm trying to witness and win people to Christ. And then I need biblical separation. Cultivate a holy hatred for everything that is sinful and impure and doubtful. That's how we keep ourselves in the love of God. Let me ask you this question in in closing. How are you doing with it? How are you doing with keeping yourself in the love of God? Are you growing spiritually? Are you maturing? Do you have a prayer life? Do you spend time with the Lord? Do you have that expectation? Are you looking for Jesus today, perhaps? This could be the day. Do we care about the lost that are dying without Jesus Christ? I saw a little news clip today about a little boy I think it was right here in, in, over in Oak Brook who drowned in a swimming pool. And I thought how 
sad for that family to lose a little one. And we care about that, don't we? But do we care when our next door neighbor's lost and may die and spend eternity in hell forever and ever? Do I have compassion? Is there biblical separation in my life? Is there any difference in the way I live and the way my unsaved neighbors or unsaved family members live? Can they see a difference? Do I have a holy hatred for sin in my life? How are we doing in keeping ourselves in the love of God? In this world filled with apostasy, as we talked about this morning, God said, I want some people who will stand up, who will contend for the faith, who will make a difference in the world in which we live. Let's bow our heads together for prayer. Father, we need your help. We want to be testimonies, good testimonies for you. We want to bring honor to your name. We want you to be pleased to call us your child. Would you help us to work at this matter of growing up spiritually? Help us to be more faithful in our prayer life. Help us to be expecting and looking for your coming. Fill us with compassion. Give us more compassion for the lost around us. And help us to cultivate a holy hatred for sin. May we keep ourselves in the love of God. We live in a wicked world. If we walk with you and live for you, we're going to stand out like the three Hebrew children in the fiery furnace. We may face some persecution. We may face some difficulties along the way. Help us to be faithful. Earnestly contend. Stand up. Stand up for Jesus. Help us to live in such a way that you're pleased to call us your children. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.